0: You have a copy of god 's word I would encourage you to take it and turn with me to Matthew chapter two verses one through sixteen this morning, Matthew chapter two verses one through sixteen you know we live in a culture with technology that a birth is something that can be shared almost instantly that there was a time where there was a delay there was a delay in the technological ability to be able to have a child and be able to share that great news even with the closest of your family members you you had to go to a payphone. you had to get them on the phone or leave a message and and so there are some of you that had children and there was there might have been hours of that delay there might have been even days of that delay, if someone was traveling, to be able to tell them the good news that their grandchild was born. Uh, we live now where, where birth announcements are almost just instantaneous. I mean, you have a child and you're able just minutes later to, to post pictures on Instagram or upon Facebook. There are text messages that are sent there from the delivery room and, and everyone receives that with great joy you got to be a pretty hardened person to see a newborn child and say, Ugh, what's going on here? You know, you you receive that news and you say, as you even receive the birth announcement in the mail, with the details and and, and the, the, the photo shoot of that child, and you're able to say, Boy, she has her mom's complexion. She has her dad's eyes. There's something about birth announcements that fill us with joy. That our our default response to a birth announcement is one of wonder and gladness and thanksgiving. And so we turn to Matthew chapter 2 to hear the birth announcement of our Savior. And the response is not just the response of wonder, but there, there are three responses. Three responses that become illustrative of our own responses during this Advent season to the coming of our Savior and Rescuer, Jesus Christ. In these 16 verses, we read the news of this response here in threefold. Uh, Verse 1, starting in Matthew chapter 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod In these 16 verses, we discover three responses to the original birth announcement of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. Three responses that become invitations to how we are able to respond to that original Christmas birth. And the first response is a response of Herod. And it's embedded here in these 16 verses, and it's a response of hostility that you're able to respond to the birth of Jesus Christ with hostility to the implications of that news for your life and for my life. Yesterday, we were able to take some boys along with our boys to the movies, and so we uh, wanted to see you know a movie that would get us into the Christmas season, I guess, and so the boys got to choose, and so we saw Aquaman yesterday, and so... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, great Christmas movie there. And so uh, our youngest son, Jonathan, is seven. So he's not, able, he's not at an Aquaman-appropriate age at this point. So his mom, my wife, Danielle, I don't know exactly why I said it that way. Uh, Dan, Danielle took him to see, uh, took him to see, uh, what did they go see, choir? What'd, the Grinch. They went to see the Grinch here. And so, and it got me to thinking a little bit about this because King Herod was or the original Grinch who uh, really wanted to steal the true meaning of Christmas here. And so I've, I've heard it, maybe you've heard it this way before. You see, there was a Grinch named Herod that did not have fur that was green, a head that was large, or a hearth that was two sizes too small. But let us consider perhaps that he did after all. For the child that was born in a stable that Bethlehem night posed a serious threat to his eminence gave the king quite a fright. Thus he commanded his soldiers, sending them out late at night with orders to murder, to kill the Christ child and to steal our delight. Who who is Herod? And how would a king, a leader do something? That, that was so hostile and so, so cruel and, and tyrannical in so many ways. How, how would this happen? Who, who would do something like this? Well, Herod ruled for 37 years. And the 37 years that he ruled over Israel was a time, really, uh, from a political standpoint and an economic standpoint, was a high point in that first century world. Herod's rule was one that positioned Israel in such a way that they would become this trading hub. They would become uh, uh, a place that was sought after. It was in his almost four decades of rule and reign. There was massive building programs. He built amphitheaters and a port, markets, temples, housing, palaces, and even walls around Jerusalem. And the way Herod held on to power is that he held on to it with an iron fist a tyrannical rule in in, in every way. A dictator uh, long before we see them, even at the heart of the 20th century here. He killed three of his children, three of his sons, that became a threat to his rule. He killed two high priests that threatened his rule. He killed one of his uncles, and he even had his mother-in-law killed. This is Herod here. I I don't know how tense your family get-togethers are, but I can assure you Herod wins the prize for that. You you assassinate your mother-in-law, it's awkward at Christmas dinner right there. So this, this is Herod right here. This is who he was, this, this iron-fisted reign and rule upon him at his deathbed. Just to get an, uh, an idea of who this person was at his deathbed, he got his military generals around him. And he said, I want you to get all the leading citizens gathered together in an amphitheater. And upon the, the time that I breathe my last breath, I want you to assassinate everyone to ensure there's mourning in the kingdom over my death. And so he hears the news of these wise men coming and saying to him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod heard that as an offense. I'm the king of the Jews. There's not room in this kingdom for two kings. And so his response is one of utter hostility to the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. Now you think to yourself, well, th- this is just this exceptional, n- maniacal of a ruler. But but I want you to see that hostility toward the birth of Jesus Christ is something that is present in our culture even today. Oh, we could look. We could look in the news. We can we could see how how certainly there there are times where our government has has less space for, for Christ in the public sphere. We we could point to that. We could talk about how the media at times doesn't portray Christianity in in the best light, oftentimes only portraying the worst parts of our faith and and, and, uh, brushing over the humanitarian efforts and the evangelistic efforts that bring goodness into our world. We could talk about that. We, we could talk about how at times in the academic realm that there, there is not a place for an expression of faith within the classroom or within teaching. I mean, we could talk about all those kinds of things. We could talk about that hostility. But But the problem with that is it becomes an us-them conversation. It becomes they out there are hostile to us that are here. But I want you to see that that the response of hostility isn't something that you need to look outside to see the response of hostility is inside all of us that are in this room here. That our default response to the news that a Savior has come is hostility to that news because it threatens the Herod-like tendencies that we all have in our heart. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, he he, he tells us so clearly that Herod lives in all of us. Because why? The mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And it's not that Paul is just going to say that we're hostile to God before our point of justification that we're hostile to God only before we accept him by faith and believe in the finished work of the gospel, that hostility still resides in us in the midst of our sanctification. We all desire to exalt me, myself, and I to the throne of self reign. And Jesus is coming It is a declaration that there can only be one king in that kingdom 2,000 years ago. And it is a declaration to you and to me that there can only be one king in your heart today. So we all have to choose. We will all choose whether we deny self and exalt our Savior or exalt self and ultimately try to commandeer the place and the position that only he is called to hold in your heart and in my heart see hostility is not something that is just outside the walls of the church per se hostility is in the walls of all of our hearts hostility is a response then and it's a response now It's a response of Herod, but there are other responses I want you to see in these 16 verses. And the second response I want you to see is indifference. Did you notice that Herod gathers together upon the wise men's declaration as they followed the stars and they are desiring to go, he says, let me get the best and the brightest. Let me get the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. He gathers them together and they attest, they confirm what the wise men are looking for. They actually quote scripture, Micah chapter 6. Verse 2, to be able to bring about. These chief priests and scribes were, were experts in the law. They had given themselves to the Old Testament. They were longing for the coming of the Messiah. But notice none of them go to seek the Savior themselves. They, they would rather stay afar from the Savior than to be up close to him. They, they would rather study about him rather than savoring him. They would rather be with earthly power and position than to bow down before eternal power who is positioned in a manger. You see, this is the temptation, not just of chief priests and scribes. It's not just the temptation of life group leaders or seminary professors or even pastors. But it is a temptation that resides in all of our hearts. We, too, can become so familiar. The facts of Christmas. We can become so familiar with the the trappings of Advent that it loses its wonder. We lose a sense of awe. We're in the presence of Advent, but we're not participating in the spirit of Advent. Well, that can happen. That can happen to all of us in this room. I remember just recently, a couple of weeks ago, the Homewood Christmas Parade was coming through. And we had basketball practice before and went into it. And then we had basketball practice in the middle of it. So we were kind of meeting. We met at Oxmoor, our whole family. And we were watching the parade and enjoying the parade. And then I had to take one of my sons to his basketball practice that was at the Homewood Rec. And so we just walked down Oxmoor, and it was toward the end of the parade, so it, maybe an hour or so had gone by. Candy was strewn everywhere, uh, the lights, the music, it was a fun time. Our kids and boys had enjoyed it. And I noticed as I was scooting out of the parade crowd going down Oxmoor to the Homewood Rec Center that I noticed a, a young girl, maybe three years old or so, who was laying down. I'm sure she was tired, I'm sure she had been standing for a while. And she was laying down in such a way that she was turned away from the parade altogether, laying down on her back. And before her, in the midst of the parade, she had a phone and she was watching something on the phone. Now listen, there, there, there's no parent shaming there. That that just, might as well have been one of my kids. You, you know, you get your kids in a place and they've been standing up and they say, "Hey, can I do something else?" So, so we live in a very distractible age. There's no doubt. But it, it hit me as a as an analogy of how often we go through life. I mean, she was present at the parade. Actually, the the. The trappings of the parade were hitting. I mean, candy was coming upon her, whether or not she was watching the parade or not. She, she was e- immersed in it, but she was not participating with it. And, and the parade of Advent is passing us by. And while we're present here in pews, there can be the temptation to not participate, to yawn our way through the Advent season. Because why? It's so predictable. So common. And it becomes indifference that, that claws at our hearts. While the, the parade of the coming of Christ is here upon us, there's a temptation to be indifferent. To it, and maybe you're here and you're not hostile to the claims of Christianity, but at the end of the day, you're just sort of indifferent to it. You're among those who are worshiping, but for you, you are not participating. Indifference is a response, hostility is a response. And the final response that we discover in these 16 verses about the original birth announcements is worship, it's the response of the wise men. Now, it is helpful to be reminded what's in the Bible about these wise men, what's not in the Bible about these wise men. It seems to me that we always, in, in Easter and Christmas, are battling between fact and tradition. And tradition's a good thing, but sometimes, especially with the case of the wise men, that tradition is overrun the uh, really the, the boundaries and the banks of fact, and it, it is spilling over into places that, that actually we don't, at least from God's word, know is accurate. So let's think of a couple of these things. One, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, we discover that the wise men show up not at the manger scene, but they show up where? At a house. So we don't have, as as oftentimes our nativity sets describe, we don't have the shepherds showing up and the wise men close on their heels to see that original Christmas night. That's not the case. Also, we don't know how many wise men were there. Uh, Tradition would tell us there's three wise men, but why would there be three wise men? Because we're counting the number of gifts that the text tells us. Well, there could have been nine wise men. There could have been six wise men. We We don't know. The, the details of the time are hard to pin down. It is difficult for us to know exactly the time. Mary is there. They're with Jesus. There's a little, It seems, at least within this passage, that there's, there's some time that is spent. Herod says, I want all the children two years or below to be killed because of the timing of the wise men. We don't know if this is a part of his extravagance and just cruel tyranny to do this, or if this is actually one or two years down the road. Again, some of these details we do not know, but this we know. We know who the wise men were. The wise men would have come from the east. They would have been from the Persian Empire. The best way to think of them is as first century astrologists. astrologists They would look at the stars. They would predict the future. They would look at the stars, and they would be able to see what they needed to do in the present. And isn't it ironic that the indifference comes from those that have God's word, that the indifference comes from the chief priest and the scribes and the ones who desire to worship him are the Gentiles who are looking at the canvas of God's creation and seeing how the stars point to the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a good reminder that Christmas isn't just for the in crowd, that Christmas wasn't just first and foremost for the Jewish people, That Christmas, even with the coming of the shepherds and even with the coming of the wise men, is a fulfillment of how God promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to make you a blessing that you're going to have a family. And that family is going to be a great nation. And because of the way I'm going to bless you as a great nation, you're going to bless all the nations Well, how in the world is that going to happen? Well, we see it already with the coming of the Israelite, Jesus Christ, whose birth is seen in the stars, and all the nations are coming here. The wise men are coming to worship him. They bring three gifts. It's a good indication here that they they understand that worship demands something tangible from us. Worship isn't just in our mind. It isn't just an intellectual exercise. It isn't something that we just read about and think about. But worship is, is a full-bodied experience It has tangible elements to it. They come bearing gifts as their worship. And the gifts are threefold here. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, we know the best, even here 2,000 years later. Gold was a gift that was resolve, reserved for what? Royalty. It was a gift that you would have brought to Herod. Again, the irony of all ironies, the wise men show up in Herod's palace not to bring him gold, but to bring gold of this new king of the Jews. So they come bearing gold because why? Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and even these wise men recognize that their response should be to bow down before him. Now, we don't necessarily come bearing our gold but we are called in response to Christ's birth we are called to bear our gold to him in worship as it symbolizes giving him our best now our best isn't once a year we write a check or once a year we do this uh, heroic act of, of sacrificial and selfless love and then that checks the box rather no Our gold is something we offer every day, as we offer to God in worship our everything. As Paul would say, therefore, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your gold. This is your spiritual act of worship that is called to be holy and pleasing to him. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased that in the message. Offer to him your everyday life. You're getting up, you're going to bed, you're going to work, you're going to school. That that every day we are called in word to deed, deed, whether we're parents or grandparents, whether we're single, whether we're elementary school students, high school students, college students, whether we're in the workplace or not in the workplace, that we're called to offer him our best thoughts, our best work unto him because why? He is deserving of our best. Not only as we gather together to give him corporate worship on Sunday as a gathered church, but we are called to give him our best every day of our lives. This is the call of gold as an offering to him. It's not the only gift they brought. They brought not only gold, but they brought what? Incense, frankincense. It's interesting that frankincense, the, the, the aroma of those gifts pointed to those first century Jews' acts of worship. One of the places that incense would have been burned was the high priest in the temple utilizing incense as an offering, a sacrificial offering. The smell would have been upon an animal. And so the incense is the foreshadowing of the purpose of Jesus, that he is what? Our great high priest. Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 17, it reads, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make what? Propitiation for the sins of the people. So as the incense, the frankincense is given as an offering, as a gift in worship and awe and wonder of who he is, it is a way of saying that he is the great high priest. He is the one, I love the words of, of, of this great hymn, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great, what, high priest whose name is Jesus, whoever lives and pleads for me. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that this Christmas season, if you are a believer If you have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he ever intercedes for you, that on his hands, your name is written, it is graven into his hands, that in his blood and in his sacrifice, he intercedes at the right hand throne of the Father for your very needs now. Your discouragement intercedes for it. Your depression, he intercedes for it. Disease, sickness, death he intercedes for every frailty of his children he's known it because he's walked it he's experienced it because he's lived it and this is the great news that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin so then go and approach the throne of grace boldly to receive your help in time of need And for some of you, the Christmas season is a time of need because you're mourning the loss of a loved one. For some of you, Christmas time is a time of need because you mourn that things are not like they used to be in your family dynamic. There's difficulty around the table. You turn on the hallmark channels, and everything gets tied up by the end of a two-hour movie with a red bow, but it's not, there there are no red bows being given out for your life. Things don't so neatly get tied up. And I'm here to tell you that there is a great high priest who is interceding, who is seated, uh, seated at the right hand throne of the Father for your needs. So there is the gift of gold, there is the gift of frankincense, and finally there's the gift of myrrh. What is this? Well, this would have been used as an anointing oil most often in the embalming process of a dead body. That this fragrance was a fragrance of of death. That this smell and aroma was a a smell of of a funeral. And isn't it foreshadowing that the cute, cuddly little Jesus, who's an infant or a toddler, however old he is, in verse 11 of chapter 2, is receiving a gift that was most often used at one's death. And it's a reminder. It's a reminder that Christmas can never be taken in isolation, that Christmas is always the first chapter that leads us to the rest of the story that culminates in Easter, that this child who was born is a child who was born to live a perfect life, a life that you and I cannot live, And die a death that all of us deserve to die. He took upon himself your sins and my sins as the perfect Christ child. And he made a way where there was no way. Where you and I, as we are hostile, all like Herod, all hostile to the claims of God the Father upon our life. He took that hostility upon himself and he bore it all. 2,000 years ago, the wise men come and they bring the gift of myrrh because he is one who will die a sacrificial death. I don't know if you've seen this painting by Holloman Hunt as a 19th century painter. It's not exactly a one-to-one correlation, but I think you'll get the gist. This is Jesus in Holloman Hunt's rendition, uh, older teenager, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, and his idea is that Jesus has just fulfilled a a long day of working as a carpenter his his lower back is aching his limbs are aching and he's going out to the edge of the doorway and he's stretching wide to be able to relieve some of the tension in his arms and in his back and at this moment his mother Mary is knelt and she's looking in this way where the the sun is setting and it casts the shadow and it the shadow that is cast is the shadow of a cross And so it was 2,000 years ago, that original birth announcement, as the myrrh was given, it was a reminder to say that the shadow of the cross was even looming over that Christ child then. Myrrh, frankincense, gold, all gifts for worship. There are three ways that you can respond this Christmas season, as we move to December the 25th, you you might respond with utter hostility. You might respond with living your life as you desire to live it in opposition to God's will for your life. You exalt yourself and you diminish the place of your Savior. That might be a place of hostility. You might respond this Christmas season, not with hostility, but just, just indifference. Or, the way that he calls us to is the way of worship. You know, probably the most important question isn't how they responded to the birth announcement. But maybe the better question is, how will you respond to his birth? Let us pray. Today, God, we reflect We reflect upon your word and the claims that it has upon our lives. Today, there are some of us in this room, all of us have felt the pull of hostility. All of us know the temptation to exalt self. We thank you that the frankincense reminds us that you as our great high priest, that when we desire to exalt self, we're able to come to you And to admit that, and that you forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you, our great high priest, makes intercession ever for us. And so for those of us that are in this room that are are rebelling from your reign and rule upon our lives, may today you convict us of that sin and comfort us by reminding us that that sin doesn't have have to have the last word in our lives. But your grace and your forgiveness... It gets the last word that propels us forward in obedience. As we think about the gold, we're reminded that we're called to worship you. And there's some of us that want to hold our gold close to ourselves. We're not willing to give you our all. We're not willing to give you our best. We oftentimes prioritize second second and third rate causes. But today, Lord God, may we give you our best remind us of, of the myrrh that reminds us that that you the Christ child as you sent your son Jesus Christ he lived the perfect life and died a sacrificial death and in that way we're able to not just be enemies of God but to be reconciled with you our heavenly father so we thank you for the sacrificial death of your son even that's foreshadowed here and the gifts that are brought May today be a day that we respond in utter adoration and worship for what you have done for us this advent season. So in your name we pray, in the saving name of Christ Jesus.